fellowship, I invite you to stand in body or in spirit as we worship our King together. Sing more creation. We're creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry. Then from
a seat. Uh, we are so happy to be here this morning after a week full of ice and cancellations. I don't know about you, but like I'm really pumped to be here and be with my people. Um, well, hey, I have a guest with me this morning. This is Brian Seba. And how about you introduce yourself to everybody real quick, Brian? Yeah, like Rochelle said, my name is Brian Seba. My wife is Becky. Uh, we have a 15-year-old son named Boston and a 13-year-old daughter named Britton. Um, we, I started going to fellowship in 94, a friend, Bo Barrett, invited me to this thing called FSM and started attending then. And then in 2011, fellowship launched our family overseas to South Asia as part of the Yellowfin team. Um, we were there, thank you, roughly seven years and then came back. We live a couple miles from here next to the Schaefer crew, and uh, I lead the Bentonville ninth grade boys, and my wife uh, hosts in our home and leads the seventh grade girls for Bentonville. That's awesome. Uh, it's really cool. I found out this morning that Brian was in FSM long ago, way back when, um, and it's just a really cool story to see how the Lord used FSM in your life and has continued to bring you um, forward and through. And so why don't you tell us about some opportunities coming up with um, some Global Workers stuff? Yeah, we've got a cool event coming up on Wednesday, uh, a Global Prayer Worker uh, time of just prayer and, and lifting up everybody that we support. It's 1030 on Wednesday and speaking from experience, prayer here changes things there. So please come and support uh, that awesome ministry. Yeah. Another thing too that we have coming up um, is that we have a trip, a mission trip to India um, coming up this March. And if you or someone you know may be interested in going overseas and doing a short-term mission trip, would you please share this with them and contact Doug Rains or um, let us know if you're interested. We'd love to give you more information on that too. Um, well, like you mentioned earlier, you serve in FSM currently, and we would love just to hear a little bit more about your serve story, what the Lord has been doing um, in you and through you and FSM being cell group leaders, because we have students in here, parents of students, grandparents of students, and if you're not currently tied to a student, then you were once a student before, and so our student ministry um, means a whole lot to me, and I know it means a lot to you too, so would you share just a little bit about what the Lord is doing? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's kind of surreal because we live on the same street that the host home was when I grew up back in the day, and so if you now fast forward one to 25 years... Um, <laughs> I now get to be the old guy that's hanging out with uh, my son's cell group, which is a ton of fun. Um, this is my third year. To see the growth from seventh grade to ninth grade has been just ex exponential. Uh, you know, Davis Wood was baptized over here a couple months ago, and to see his, his hunger and desire to grow has inspired myself and everybody in the cell group. He'll be here in the second service with a notebook, taking copious notes, just wanting to write everything down, which is, challenges me in a good way. Um, 
and then we, t you know, I get texts and phone calls of, of, of things going on with the guys, stuff that they either want to confess and, and just talk about and process with. And, and for me personally, that's, I just feel the Lord being like, that's what I created you for. And so it's, it's just, I don't know, I've got three and a half more years and I'm really excited about it. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we are super, super thankful for you. And if you don't know Brian or if you don't know the Seba family, I encourage you to get to know them. They have been a wonderful blessing to us and the ministry of FSM. And so we're just really, really thankful for you guys. So We're thankful for this body as well. So yeah. We love you guys. And we are always in need of people who are willing and wanting to serve. So if you're interested in serving in the student ministry, whether that's, you know, leading worship on Sunday mornings or helping us out in the tech booth in the back or leading a cell group or opening up your home to hosting a cell group, please contact us. We would love to connect with you and just talk more about FSM and what that could look like. So thanks, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, while we're at it, uh, our team is growing. And so I want to welcome up a new member of our team. Where is he? Dylan, are you out there? There's Dylan. And then we also have another teammate up here. Her name's Allie. Allie, come forward. Hey, the Lord is growing our team and he's also growing our ministry. And I just wanted to show you guys two new faces. So we've got Dylan. Wave Dylan. This is Dylan. He's one of our newest members, and he's a uh, guy's ministry leader. And then we've got Allie, who's um, our worship leader and also helps out with the girls' ministry. And we are just so thankful for them. And we are really pumped for you guys to get to know them and meet them as the weeks come and the months come. And so um, if you see them around or see them after service, tell them, hey, we'd love for um, them to feel at home here at this new campus. So Dylan, would you pray us into worship? I'd love to. Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather. Thank you for the gift that this church is um, to come and to worship and to learn about you as a community of believers. God, I pray that as we dive into Daniel, God, that you would just open our hearts and that we would see what it looks like to live um, in a way that's countercultural uh, to the way that a lot of people are living. Um, draw our affections to you, uh, allow us to see and experience your love for us um, and help us to just express that love in our communities and when we leave this building. We love you. We're thankful for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, would you stand with us as we sing?
As we go into offering him, I invite you to read this prayer with me. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we can always trust in you. You are an abundant God, and out of your great mercy, you have given us so much. We give you this offering today. With it, we worship you and give our whole selves to you. Please take it and use it for your kingdom and your glory. Extend and multiply its reach and influence, we pray. May it be a great blessing to many. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus.
How do we live in a culture that's different than the one that we're used to? Probably the best people to answer that are expats. I bet we have quite a few in here, people from other countries living uh, here in America. I am not one of those. Uh, I'm an Arkansas boy through and through, but I have experienced a little bit of foreign culture through some short-term travel. My longest tenure in a foreign land was when I was 20 years old doing a, an English teaching exchange in Hong Kong. And uh, there's a lot to unpack in these four pictures. Uh, number one, the attire. This is a, a white sideways trucker's hat with a purple Converse tank top, green, yellow, and orange plaid shorts, and white brand new Velcro tennis shoes. Uh, I was not trying to be funny. I have no words for why I did this. Uh, number, number two, I definitely look like Gene Wilder uh, from, um, I can't even think of the movie, uh, Willy Wonka, my goodness. Kids, if you don't know who that is, he's a famous meme. You can go look it up. Uh, I experienced a, a lot of different things in this month uh, while I was over there. Number one, language. I don't speak uh, Cantonese. I didn't learn that at West Memphis Christian School at all. Number two, the names of, of my students, uh, the students that I was teaching got to pick their English names. So this is me with Nike. <laughs> and uh, in my class, I also had, uh, what was it, bamboo, uh, rainy candy, and fresh air. So very unique names. Uh, shopping, street markets. I'm like, where are these in America? Like, I learned to love for bargaining, and I found it when I got back here. It's called Facebook Marketplace, and I love it. I'll buy anything if I can get a deal. So if you got a deal, hit me up. Food. Uh, Kyle Plunkett was in the office with me. He's like, dude, what's up with the plate of French fries? I'm like, bro, those are not French fries. Look closer. 
Uh, my expectation of what Chinese food would be, being from Arkansas, was Lynn's Garden and Panda Express. And I'll be honest, I was blown away. I ate some of the best food I've ever eaten in my life. It was incredible. I loved my time there. I'd choose to go back if I could. I loved Hong Kong. But what do you do when you end up in a culture or a world that's different than the one you're used to and you didn't choose to be there? How do you handle that? And for the sake of where we're going this morning, we're, we're followers of Jesus in here. I want to bend that question to a certain angle. How do we live in a world or a culture that doesn't follow God? What does it take to be faithful to, to God in a culture that isn't? Do we usurp? Do we submit? Is it somewhere in between? One of the things that I've desperately tried to do as a pastor, especially over the last three years, which have been pretty volatile, is, is to show people this is not a new question. If we think about when did you know, the world stop following God, that did not happen in our lifetime. You can trace it back throughout history. You can trace it back throughout Scripture. Go back to Genesis, the story of Noah and the flood, and you will find evidence of people trying to live for God in a world that doesn't. And it's not new to us at all. The best thing that we can do in Scripture to study in order to understand how to answer this, in my opinion, is to study the life of Christ, hands down, and to study Jesus and to see how did God, as man, walk this earth in this tension? How did he live? How did he interact with people? After him, there are other things that we could study, but I think it's hard to beat the story of Daniel. Because in this book, we get evidence of a few young men who are living in a cultural context very different than what they're used to, a culture that doesn't worship the same God that they do. And they have to navigate really hard situations in an attempt to not only survive, but to actually thrive without compromising their faith in Yahweh. Now, I chose to go to Hong Kong. I would be called a tourist, right? We have a word for people who end up in another country that didn't choose to be there. The word we hear most, most common nowadays is refugee, but also there's the term exile. And, and suddenly, the things that are funny or cute about being in a different culture become devastating to livelihood and the ability to find a job or to communicate or to have any type of community. We're about to study some young men who entered into a very similar scenario and had to ask this question, should we assimilate into this new culture in order to survive? So a few things about the book of Daniel, some background information. Most scholars agree that Daniel was written by Daniel. There, there are some who would say, you know, that there's too many prophecies that are predicted that are true, so someone must have added content later. And people could have added commentary later, but it seems like the bulk of the evidence are key intimate details that only Daniel or someone really close to him would know. So we're pretty sure that he's actually the one who writes it. And as this story unfolds, you're going to get this perspective from him on this different take of the allure of large empire, of money, of power, of influence. And he's going to show us that it's not something necessarily to be admired or sought after, but to be cautioned against in our participation with it. So this takes place in the exilic period. This is the, the period of exile of the Jews, and this is the, the chart, the very basic chart that we used when we opened the book of Esther to kind of show where we're at in the story of God's people. And so we actually have to back up from the book of Esther. Daniel's written uh, in a time before that to actually see what's going on. So we're backing up all the way to 605 
B.C. This is the deportation of the Jews who are moved into exile under the, the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And this period, this exilic period, is going to last 70 years. The whole story of Daniel is based in that period, in this exile period. When reading Esther, we had to search for the hidden hand of God, and we longed to see people faithfully following God. We didn't see it explicitly stated. We read into that, and we trusted that God was working behind the scenes and that people were remaining faithful to him. But the book of Daniel is going to be a breath of fresh air because it's the exact opposite. It's going to reveal God's plan and to reveal his presence very evidently. And on top of that, we're going to get to see godly people making godly decisions as they follow in faithfulness to Yahweh. So there's some fun content in this book. There's some crazy narratives with writings on the wall and defying the laws of fire and being stuck in a room with a bunch of large feral cats. It gets very, very interesting, okay? Lots of cool stuff. But on top of that, there's prophecy. There's things that are a little bit more difficult to understand. And there's apocalyptic revelation. Now, all scripture is revelation from God. It's the revealing of who he is and his story uh, through his word. But some of these revealings actually deal with what we might call end times. And this time when the earth as we know it would cease to exist and is made new and we get to live physically with Christ. There are two major books in scripture that help give some evidence of that, Revelation and the book of Daniel. And so when you take the content, the easiest breakdown of the book is to break it up by content. So you kind of have two, two sections, really, half stories, half visions. You've got these court tales of Daniel and his buddies in this foreign court learning to live and to follow God faithfully. And then you've got these visions that Daniel's going to receive about things that are to come. And actually, 7 through 12 most likely take place in the midst of 1 through 6, but they're all listed and kind of clumped together at the end later. There's a major problem, though, that complicates this and makes it not as easy. And it's the language that the book of Daniel is written in. It's actually written in two languages. It's written in Hebrew, which is the language of God's people. And a portion of it's actually written in Aramaic, which would be one of the common languages of the Gentile nations uh, of the day. So basically, when you break it down by language, you've got all of chapter one, which is what we're in today, is going to be written in Hebrew. Then it moves into Aramaic a little bit into chapter two and stays there for a majority of the stories and into the visions. And then the last five chapters, it goes back to being written in Hebrew. Why is this? The best reasoning that I could find was that it seems this middle section is really dealing with the stories and prophecies of the Gentile nations and God's sovereign reign and control over them. And on the bookends, we actually see very specific information dealing with the future of Israel and, and God's people. So those are going to be written in that language. So don't miss this. As we're trying to interpret, what is Daniel saying? What is he getting from God? What is he talking about? Who is he talking about? He's giving us a really important clue by the language that he writes that section in. So it's really important. Like Esther, there's a chiastic structure to the book of Daniel. You'll see that on, I think, pages 42 and 43 of your study guide if you, if you have them. A chiasm is a literary technique that uses parallelism to highlight an emphasis of some sort. And so we don't have time to really go deep into it today. You're going to see it unfold as we get into the story more over the coming weeks. But we're focusing on chapter one. So I pray that the Lord would lead us, that he would reveal his word to us, that he would teach us. That's what I've been praying all week. 
and may it be so this morning. So verse one, starting with Daniel, here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse one is all about the historical context. It's given us the facts that we need to know. King Nebuchadnezzar and his army came in and they conquered Jerusalem. This is the the deportation into exile, okay? This is the 605 BC event, which in the story of the Jewish people, of God's people, is a huge, huge deal. And exile was actually something that was predicted for God's people if they disobeyed. You, you can find nuggets of it throughout the Old Testament, some very specific, some more general. We see it pretty clear here, explained early, even in Deuteronomy, where the people of God, the way God dealt with, with his people, the nation of Israel before Christ, was if they obeyed, they would experience blessing. If they disobeyed, he had promised curses. And so he says, if you will not obey, these curses are gonna come upon you. What are they? Well, you move forward later in the chapter, the Lord is going to bring you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And this nation will overtake you. They will swoop in and they will take you. Uh, Isaiah gets even more specific and says, it's going to be Babylon. They're going to take everything in your palace, even your people, your relatives, your descendants. They're going to be taken away. And that's exactly what happened and exactly what we see taking place in the very beginning of Daniel where he's giving us some context as to what's happening. He says, he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Very important note here. It says they brought things into the house of their own God, the Babylonian God. Really important note hidden here. Why is that important? Who is this God of Babylon? His name was Marduk, okay? This is an ancient depiction of him over here uh, on your right. When people, to give you some context, when people compete at something nowadays, a lot of times we'll go up a a rung on the ladder of description to describe who won or lost. So think of the Olympics. If someone loses a race in the Olympics, we might say their name, that person lost, or we might say USA lost, or Russia lost, or Japan, or whoever actually lost. And we would go up to describe something a little bit bigger. Something significant happens in this portion of the story because back in that day, when two nations went to war, it was seen as their gods going to war. So when Babylon comes in and conquers Jerusalem, the overwhelming assumption would be that Marduk defeated Yahweh. That's what everybody would think. Even the Jews would would probably think that. And so that's important to note because not only is their national identity shot now, but think about their spiritual identity. They're going, God, you're, you claim to be the Alpha and Omega, the Almighty One, the Creator, and you lost to Marduk? And I, I have to assume that there's questioning going on as all of this is unfolding. But in this process, God is going to raise up a new generation of prophets to reveal that he did not lose the war and that he is not gone, and that in fact he's still at work, and this is part of his plan, and the people are right where they're supposed to be. And we see that from the little theological nugget kind of hidden here in verse 2 where it says, and the Lord gave Judah into their hands. This was the Lord's work that they went into exile. 
He allowed this to happen. Outside of the Bible, you won't see that. You're gonna look at a story like this and see that you know Babylon's military was stronger, so they won. But we have an insight from the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture that shows us otherwise. Two major implications leap off the page for me. Number one, God allows hard things to happen. We don't always know why or when or how or anything like that, but God allows hard things to happen. I was trying to explain this to my kids a couple years ago of like how something really hard or difficult could happen, but good could still come from it, like what's going on. So I used the the um, illustration of kids getting shots. We've probably used that before. If you've had kids, you may have used that. And I said, God gave us shots, which hurt, to help us from getting hurt even worse. And my five-year-old at the time looked at me and said, well, God needs to stop. <laughs> like, just no, no God. And I think a lot of times when we face hard situations, we might have the same reaction. The difference here is that the hard things were given out of God's faithfulness. Don't miss this. We often think about the faithfulness of God in a positive light. Every song we will sing this morning, the ones we've sung, the one we're going to finish with at the end, we're singing about God's faithfulness, which is a really good thing. But there's a negative aspect to God's faithfulness. And what I mean by that is when God promises consequences, he delivers. He is faithful both ways. So the second thing I see that really pops out here is that God knew what would happen when he gave Israel over to the Babylonians. He knew. He knew what the perception would be amongst the world and probably even amongst some of the Jews who had forgotten this prophecy. And so note this. We see an Old Testament aspect of God here with major New Testament implications. God is willing to suffer humiliation in order to bring about ultimate awakening and life for his people. Now, based on what we know of the full story of Christ, which we're not going to get into fully right now, I want you to let that sit for just a second. God is willing to suffer humiliation for the ultimate awakening and life of his people. And it's hidden right there in this story, years and years before Christ would come. All right, back into the story, because one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar does in this conquering is he is going to capture some of these young men who are in the, the Jewish family, okay? And it's very specific who he's going after. These are the best and the brightest, okay? They're of the royal family, use without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, knowledge, understanding, learning. These were the smartest, the fittest, the best looking, the wisest. So just as a reminder, I would not have made the cut. I just want to put that out there. Uh, they would have looked at me and been like, "Now nah, we'll pass. We're going to move on. Students, let me talk to you for a second. Why would they take the young ones? Why not go after the rulers of the household, the elders? Why, why pick the young people of the Jews? Some might say that it's because you're easily influenced, right? And that you can't think for yourself. You need someone to hold your hand through all these major decisions, and they'll be able to easily sway them into thinking the things that they uh, want them to think. I don't think that's it at all. I don't think it has anything to do with that because Actually, I think a lot of times younger people think for themselves more independently 
because you don't have decades of just subtle influence that's affected how you think and live over time. I actually think they go after the young ones because of the influence that you hold. Companies do this today, market things towards teenagers. Why? Because teenagers are going to affect the trajectory of business and culture for the next 25 years. So I think Nebuchadnezzar is very smart in why he's doing this. He's holding them like hostages to keep the royal family in line. And if he can indoctrinate them, he's going to change a whole nation to become like Babylonians. So they're taken into this Babylonian culture for a total Babylonian makeover. Before them is a new culture with enticing luxuries that come with a complete new identity. And the Babylonians were well known for being highly educated. And so he's going to put them through three years of this indoctrination and training program. It's going to include languages they're going to have to learn, probably Aramaic, which is why some of this is written in Aramaic. Uh, they're going to study astronomy, mathematics, medicine, all the things that it would take to be well-educated and knowledgeable in that empire, they're going to go through for three whole years. And so in verses 6 and 7, we are introduced to the main characters that we're going to follow throughout the story of Daniel. Four boys, each of them with two names. They're given Hebrew name that they've had since birth, and then the Babylonian name that's given to them by this new empire, which was a process of basically trying to practice sovereign control over them to indoctrinate them and show you're now part of our culture, you now have this new name. The four highlighted, we know Daniel most famously by his Hebrew name, Daniel. The other three, you prob probably know them more famously by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Four young men now living away from their families in a different context, living life together. You might call it the first cell group that's ever existed, or you might not because it's very different than that. But they're faced with the question mentioned at the beginning of this teach. How do you live in a world and culture that does not follow God? Marduk rules and reigns in this culture, according to everybody. How do they live? What do they do? Can it, can it even happen? Is it possible? Do you compromise your beliefs? Do you tolerate sin? Do you obey ungodly authorities? And if so, to what extent? Do you follow the law of the land and be a good citizen? Do you pray if you're told not to? What they're facing is very different from what we live in, but there are some similarities. And summarized, it would be, do you go with the crowd in order to fit into the culture? Or do you follow God despite what the consequences may be, whether it's your reputation or advancement opportunities or anything in that realm? Now, a quick run through of this scene is going to show us a couple of things. First thing that we see about Daniel and his interaction is positive. He resolved that he would not defile himself. He did not want to defile himself before God by eating what the king had placed in front of him to eat, part of this new diet that he was supposed to partake in with this food and with this wine. He resisted one aspect of this indoctrination process, and he does so not in some outlandish uproar, but with a simple question to his authority. And fast forward, we see the second instance of God moving behind the scenes. By the way, if you have your Bible and you're okay with underlining, I would underline where you see God gave. You're going to see it three times. This is the second instance. God gave Daniel favor. 
within this palace system. Now, that favor only went so far at first because notice the people who he's talking to, like he has favor with them, but they're terrified of the king. And they're like, we can't allow you to eat something different because what would the king do to us if he knew we went against a command that he had set forth? And so it doesn't change right away. But before we go into the rest of the story, I want to pause and ask, why didn't he eat the food? And there's a couple, people have interpreted this differently, different ways. But there's a couple options I would give you. Number one, it could have been dietary. There's probably some unclean meats in there that would have violated Jewish law, so Daniel doesn't want to do that. Uh, it could have been religious. Some of that food or all of that food may have been offered to idols, and that would violate Daniel and these Jewish boys. Could have been that he just wanted some independence and did not want to be in full submission to the king's uh, authority, to the food that was given, um, to this government-issued food. It's probably some level of all of these. And the way that I would describe it in human terms, I've been wrestling with this the last uh, week or so as I've been prepping and coming up with this, is I think it's some level of both of these things that Daniel was doing, having a divine distinction and a subtle separation. So what are those? Divine distinctions would be moral decisions that we make because we follow God. Because we follow Yahweh, the creator, we follow Jesus and all that he has laid out for us, there are going to be certain things in this world that we do or don't partake in, whether it be with what we eat or drink, not according to the law, but just the way that we live amongst people, the way that we partake, maybe in alcohol or something like that. Maybe it's the way that we work or the things we say or the relationships that we have and the sexual purity within those. But there's going to be divine distinctions that we have because we take our cues from Jesus and because we follow him. For Daniel, there's probably some of that going on. It says he didn't want to defile himself. So there's some type of divine command from God that he's saying, I have to draw the line here. But I also see an aspect of this, this attempt at a subtle separation. And here's what I mean. These are not necessarily decisions we make based on morals, but more on wisdom. So they may in and of themselves not be a right or wrong decision, but because of the context, it would be wise to make them. Think about Daniel's situation. The Babylonian empire was engrossing every aspect of his life. New location, new name, new diet, new language, new education, new schedule, new everything. And the ability to exercise choice for him was probably very limited, but he found one area where he still had some level of choice that he could exercise. And he, I think he's taking this subtle separation to try to remove himself from being fully indoctrinated into the hustle around him. What does this look like for us? I don't want to give too many examples because I actually think this might be one of the best conversations that you could have with those close to you this week, whether it's your family, your roommates, your community group, to actually ask the question, where do I need to distance myself? Where am I getting lost in the world around me? And are there any areas I need to be pulling away from, even just in a subtle way, because they've got too much control on the direction of my life? Because, I'll give you one example. Because of our current world, I think for a lot of us, one of the things that might fit in that category is media of, of different types. For me, it was Instagram. I've probably told you all this before, but a couple years ago, 
my wife and I were having a conversation where we were both putting things on the table where my life was being directed by social media use, whether it was with sin or with contentment or with a lot of different things. And we had decided, like, it's probably healthy for me to separate and to have one distinction that separates me from people around me. Will it last forever? I don't know. Maybe not. It's been a couple years. My life hasn't fallen apart. Uh, It's actually better in a lot of ways. And so maybe for you it's media-related, but maybe it is, you know, food, drink, alcohol, something like that related. Maybe it has to do with your job and a decision that you need to make to have some type of subtle separation from getting lost in the hustle of things around us in our very hustle-oriented Bentonville, Arkansas. Think through what that could look like for you. I believe spiritual disciplines and rhythms are one of the best markers that help us understand how we can do this in a healthy way, how we can separate and have a different life rhythm, which is why this summer, we're gonna spend the whole summer going through spiritual disciplines and rhythms of Christ's followers. But what does it look like for you? I think one of the things that marks Daniel is not just what he did, but it's the way in which he did it. He asks a question. He went to the chief of the eunuchs, found favor. That favor did not grant him the access to a different diet that he wanted. But he is a student of the culture around him, not a rebel. He knows the culture in which he's in and what will happen if he does certain things, and he's contextualized it. So please notice, Daniel does not start a rebellion here. He doesn't storm the court. He doesn't create a smear campaign against Nebuchadnezzar to throw him under the bus for taking away his spiritual rights that he has to worship God. He doesn't do any of that. He gently requested permission to abstain. And when the request was denied the first time, he went down a rung on the ladder, looked around for a person of peace, found a servant that he thought, maybe he'll listen to me, presented to him, and that person was like, yeah, I find this reasonable. Let's see if we can make this work. He didn't do it in some loud and obnoxious way, but presented an alternative plan. And then he said, And this, I think, really, really goes to show his trust in the Lord. He says, test us. Trust me, test us. Give us 10 days to eat only vegetables and water, right? Every kid's nightmare meal. He's like, give us just veggies and water for 10 days. If you're a vegan, Daniel is your guy, right? He's got it all together. If you're not, don't worry. Whole30 and CrossFit are not requirements to follow Jesus. Can I get an amen? Yeah. That's not what what we learn from this is that this is the way that we should eat. We see that he's choosing to not be defiled and to keep his heart set on the Lord. And it's as if in this whole situation that Daniel knows, Yahweh is still in control. Test me. Watch what he does to our bodies. Watch, Watch how much more fit we are than the other people. And you see that in the results, that their faithfulness in this leads to their exaltation within this kingdom context. And there's a divine distinction and a subtle separation that both Daniel and his buddies take part of that God uses to keep his people faithfully close to him. This is going to be the first of three stories that we see where they live with faithfulness despite consequences that could arise. And compared to the lion's den and the fiery furnace, nothing about this screams danger, danger. But there's danger and it's in subtle compromises over time. It's in living life without realizing what you're being indoctrinated into. 
Because small compromises over time are destructive, but on the flip side, subtle separations are formative and life-changing for someone who walks by the Spirit of God. And the Lord's grace is evident. We've seen him give something twice already, and we see it the third time that he's not only given them favor, but he's going to give them wisdom and knowledge and the ability to do things that other people can't. Now, real quick, a small aside. I would love to take five, 10 minutes to really unpack this, but just a small aside. The subtle theme in chapter one is that God gave. That's the consistency we see. God gives three things here. If you trace that through scripture, you will get to John 3.16 eventually, where God actually gives the best gift we could ever ask for or need, and it's the gift of his son, that all who would believe in him would not perish. We see that God is a giving God, and there's hints of it, not even hints, it's blatant here in the scripture so many years before. But for these four men, God gave them knowledge and wisdom. That doesn't mean they didn't study. I assume they worked very hard, but God just elevated their work in the midst so that he could accomplish something greater through them. And then we see an important note that Daniel was given understanding in all visions and dreams. And so that's going to play out for the rest of the book because visions when you're awake, dreams when you're asleep, these were two primary modes that God would use to communicate things to his prophets. So it's very important that we see that Daniel was given those. Chapter one opens with a shameful defeat of the Jews going into captivity, and it closes with these same people being found 10 times better than all the rest in the kingdom, including the king's own men, his own servants. And so in all of this change, we have to ask one thing, what hasn't changed? And the answer is simple, God. God has not changed. And you'll see this underlying theme that there is a God in Babylon and his name is not Marduk, it's Yahweh. And he's working throughout the story. One of the things that I'm struck by in this story of Daniel that we haven't really mentioned is his age. He's a young teenager when all of this is happening, probably 13 to 15. So I'm gonna ask for some participation. This is dangerous, here we go. If you're 18 or younger, would you stand up? I want to speak directly to you for a minute. As a church, we need Daniels. We need young men and women who will faithfully choose to follow Jesus despite the culture and consequences around them, that will live life in biblical community, that will fix your eyes on Jesus and say, I know where I came from. I know where I'm going because of the cross of Christ and I will choose to follow him no matter what the consequences around me may be. Stay standing. You don't get to sit down for the rest of the service, okay? You're, you're up. We're gonna worship here in a minute. But before we end, there's one more verse in Daniel chapter one. And it's, easy, it's kind of a throwaway verse. It's easy to read through and just be like, oh, why did it end with that? Seven Hebrew words packed with dynamite. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do y'all know how many years are packed into this one verse? 70 years. 70 years, which means Daniel served God faithfully well into his 80s. This is where I might get in trouble, okay? If you're 65 or older, would you please stand? 64-year-olds are like, we're still young, still got it. Middle-aged. 
we need Daniels. Men and women who will choose to serve God faithfully well into their 80s if the Lord wills it and won't get lost in the things around them and get sidetracked, but will give everything that you have to pour into the next generation of believers. We'll disciple, we'll live faithfully, won't get lost in the kings and the kingdoms because as Daniel shows us, kings and kingdoms will rise, but God's people will remain because God remains faithful. Everyone else, you don't get a pass. Go ahead and stand. All my middle-aged people, 19 to 64. (laughs) This is the church, and we need each other, young and old. Different backgrounds, different races, ages, nationalities, giftings. We're diverse, and there's beauty in diversity. And we need each other. Jeff Gross was praying uh, this morning that God's spirit would be moving on this campus even in the youngest classrooms this morning because this is the church and we're called to serve God faithfully no matter our age. And God's gonna use us in different ways and he's gonna use us together. And one of the things we get to do together is worship. It's one of the reasons we gather is because we look at the faithfulness of God and it leads us to worship. If you'll click over to the the Corinthians verse, it says this. This is a song we're gonna sing that grammatically doesn't make a lot of sense. First couple of times I sang it, I'm like, what am I even singing? What is it saying? It's called Yes and Amen. I love it. It's probably the most sung song in our household. But it comes from this verse where it says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. He is sovereign. He is faithful, positive and negative. He is who he is. And because of his yes, Through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. His faithful yes leads to our faithful amen. That's what we worship together with this morning. All right, I really want you to lift your voices. Sing it out with me, okay? Here we go. Father of kindness, you have poured out grace. You brought me out of darkness. You have filled me with peace. And giver of mercy, you're my help in time of need. Lord, I can't help but see. Sing it out, faithful. And faithful you are. It's faithful forever you will be. Faithful you are. And all your promises are yes and amen. It's all your promises. 
don't just let Andrew have fun. Let's sing it. Come on, have some fun with him. I will rest in your promises. My confidence, my confidence is your faithfulness. I will rest in your promises. You're standing too still, people. Come on. Hey, you guys, if you are new here, we'd love to meet you. We have a newcomers meeting over here in the FSM room. If you go out those doors and head to your left, you'll find us there and we'd love to connect. Also, we have a um, baby bottle campaign going on right now with Loving Choices. Loving Choices exists to help mothers of all ages who find themselves in unexpected pregnancies, who also find themselves in crisis. And as a church, we want to be faithful in helping those mothers. So if you find yourself in a season where you can give generously, would you grab a baby bottle on your way out? Those are due back here on the 19th. And then if you need prayer this morning, if you just need somebody to come alongside you, we'd love to do that. Our prayer team is over here to your left as well, and they would love to help support you in that and pray for you. And then as a send out, and as we go into the coming week, I would love to read an encouragement to you that Paul ended his second Corinthians uh, letter with to the people in the church of Corinth. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind and live in peace. And the God of love and peace be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. Go in peace, fellowship. We love you.